middle class. I'm really concerned about what's happening in America. I'm concerned about a division that's taking place. That's not a right or a left statement. It's just facts. There's an increasing disparity, and there's a lot. The middle class is actually decreasing. So I just have a concern about that, bottom line. But right now, we're still pretty good, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And bottom line is, is that here's what Labor Day has become. Rather than confrontational, Labor Day has become that holiday which sort of marks the end of the time of the year that you like <laughs> and the beginning of the time of year that you don't like as much, right? Even though fall is beautiful, Labor Day is kind of, you know, fun, 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 enjoy, 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 spread out your days, get summer, have fun. And now after Labor Day, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I have to go back to work, right? So there is, I, I want to say something about Labor Day. Labor Day, the way that we celebrate Labor Day and look forward to it so much, I think is a, yet another evidence of how much in denial we can live, okay? Because really, there's this thing about Labor Day that doesn't really show up until Monday evening, right? When it's kind of like, oh, shoot. You know, but on Friday, we're like, just deny Tuesday. You know what I mean? It's like, we're getting three days. We're going to have a blast, right? So I, I just want you to think about something. What if, now, now just think about this, see? What if, I mean, when we work, work is a wonderful thing. Work is awesome. If, if, you're, if you're fortunate to have a job that you love, that you feel good at, that you find purpose and meaning and value, and it provides for your family, Work can be absolutely phenomenal. There was work in the garden, tending the garden. The only, the, the problem with work coming from the garden and our choice to separate ourselves from God was, is that at some point in time, work became this four-letter word that had to do with the sweat of your brow. It was in the garden when he said, look, it's still going to have that blessing part of it, but there's also going to be that it's going to yield its produce and it's going to yield its value to you in a hard way as opposed to it just being a blessing. See that? So once again, even in our jobs, like you may actually love your job. I, I just, I'd love to know this. How many people can say, I really do love my job? How many people? See that? I mean, that's phenomenal. Look at how many people raise their hands. That's just wonderful. Okay? But, but even then, there is a certain amount of almost denial going on. Because there is a part of that job, even as much as you like and it gives you fulfillment and it provides and it does all the things that you like, there is that part of work that is sort of, you know, velvet handcuffs. Right? You know, I have to. Uh, you know, you'd really like to do something else that day, but you don't have that option. You see what I'm saying? So there is this aspect of it that we, that we do. Now, I want you to, so, so here's what I want to say. When we're going into Friday of a Labor Day holiday, when, when it's Friday and particularly after work, you feel so good, don't you? Long weekend, going to be fun, going to barbecue, spend some time on a lake, do whatever, get to be with friends. I'm going to do something really wonderful. That feeling that you have, what if you could actually have that feeling all the time? And not just about work, because think about it. What I'm t really talking about even more deeply than work is burden. Because there is this thing about life. Most of us are pretty good about doing this with life. There's these hard things in my life. There's the big four, right? Relationships from familial to neighbor to coworker to friends. There's relationships. That's the biggest category, right? And we've always got a few relationships that are in the kink, right? 
They're just sideways, right? But then there's a lot of other ones that are actually doing pretty well. But that's, that's one of the big categories in which people can be burdened. If you're getting a divorce, if you've got a child that's astray, if you're estranged from your parents, if whatever, you can really have some pain in there, right? A burden. The same thing with your workplace, right? If your workplace just has some problems in it that are burdening you, then you have this backpack on your back and you're sort of got some rocks in the back and it'd be nicer to go through life without that weight, right? Then the next thing, so you've got, the, you've got relationships, you've got familiar, then you've got health, okay? And health is a big one, right? It, it, for most of us, health is almost a given until it isn't. And then it takes over, right? If you've really got a serious health problem going on, you know that it can be completely consuming of your whole life. There's another one, too, which has to do with, um, sorry, my mind is on a, drawing a blank, um, uh, relationships, <laughs> oh, finances. Jeez, I really should remember that one. <laughs> Denial, right there. <laughs> oh, I'm good at it. Okay, so finances, which is just to say it just isn't, you know, finances are just not where they need to be, and there's something that's, there's something that's weighing on you and that's burdening you and so on. And, and a lot of people, you know, you get the point. Most of us are pretty good at just sort of pressing down the stuff that's burdening us and going after the other stuff. But what if you could live life free of burden? I mean, seriously. What if not, and I'm not talking about free of circumstance. I'm not talking about free of any kind of problem in your life. I'm talking about what if you could live your life in the middle of a problem and not be burdened by it? Would that be nice? What if you could live your life as if it was Friday before Labor Day every day of your life so that you not only didn't have a burden, but you had an expectation. You had something that you were looking forward to that was causing you to be excited about what was happening next no matter what's happening in your life, right? Would that be good? We're going to take a giant step, I believe, in that direction today. Sound good? All right, Rich Bixby, is that who it was? This is awesome, Rich Bixby. He does a Bible study for a lot of people here on Wednesday mornings. He does all kinds of stuff and has for years and years. Rich, you are awesome. Pray for the sermon, lift up another church, would you? Heavenly Father, it's okay. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for this weekend, for having, having the time to kick up the heels, to run around fix oven doors or whatever it might be. We ask also that you help us change our perspective. Amen. And not have us look at how we get from here to here trusting in man, but how we look to go from here to our ultimate goal, which is you, Amen. and trust in you. Amen. We thank you that you are our provider, that you are our everything. Amen. And we thank you for everything that you've done. We just ask that you would Touch our hearts today. Put your word in our hearts. Amen. And let it be assimilated so that it becomes part of our lives. We also ask that you would lift up um, the first press of Bellevue. Amen. And Amen. just put your hand on them. Put your hand of blessing and grace on them. And give them peace. And, and just let them know you in a Thank more you, rich Lord. way. In Jesus' name Thank we you. pray. Rich, that was a great prayer to lift up Belprez, particularly in light of its first prayer is now called Belprez, but 
particularly in light of last weekend and the service day and Jubilee Reach and everything, all of which they started. That is such a bellwether church in this area, Lighthouse on the Hill. I love that church. Uh, I also love your prayer, Rich. I don't really have to do a sermon now, so would you all like to go home and enjoy Labor Day? I really think you'll actually want to stick around and listen to this because I, I, I think I'm pretty excited about it. So in order to understand this thing about how to live life in quite a different fashion, I want to propose to you that what we do is look at his names. Now, watch what his names are. When God reveals who he is such that we can call him something new, that's a revelation of himself to us, right? And we have to recognize something about the fact that God reveals himself. Do you realize that no other religion in all the world has a God that does this? Now, the reason why they don't is because they don't have a real God. They don't have a living God. See, here's how all religions besides Christianity are essentially built. There's somebody who has an incredible idea, and there's a lot of truth in their idea, which is one of the reasons why people get such value out of it. I'm not saying they're all false. There's something about them that is false, but bottom line is, is that they have a lot of truth in them. And so someone, a Muhammad writes down things about God. Uh, Buddha, the original Buddha, writes down things about God. The original writings that, that become Hinduism, uh, and there was only a few in a short period of time. They, they become, it becomes essentially what you've got in religions is you've got some religious text, even Confucianism, which is not really a religion, but it's an idea about how to live your life, right? And what you've got is an original text. It's an idea about life and things and how they are. And then what you do is you read it, <coughs> you assimilate it, you try and live it out, and in so doing, good things, for the most part, will tend to happen, right? And so that's the religious impulse that most people think of all religions as. It's this thing where you pursue it. It's some ideas. It's some principles. It's an idea about how things are, and then you live it. Now, that is in complete contrast to what God does, to what only God can do because he's the only one that's real, alive, and active throughout all of history. And in a way that he's revealing himself more and more and more. See, an infinite God to finite people is trying to make himself more and more known and so he reveals himself in some way. We go, oh my gosh, that's God such and such. And then he reveals himself again. Oh my gosh, that's God such and such. Oh my gosh, that's God such and such. And what we've got in the Bible as opposed to any other religion is you don't have a book filled with principles by which you live. What you have is 2,000 years of history. And people writing about that. This history. These things that God did. Our, our book is a history book. It's stories that are real, that happened, that show us who God actually is. Do you see that? That's an extraordinary thing. And if you think about it for a second, there's a second level at which that's extraordinary. And that is, here's how religion ought to work. This is the way it works in most religions. You've got to go to God. He's not pursuing you. You've got to go to Him. See it? But here's what the Bible is filled with. His pursuit of you. Not just for 2,000 years that the Bible was being written, but ever since, and even before. History, his story, is the story of him pursuing us. 
Now, right there, the fact that he's the God who we ought to be serving and bending our knee for, that God is pursuing you. Because after all, let's be frank, who are you? Who am I? That he should care. That he should make me just a little lower than himself, like himself. It's an extraordinary thing that we're looking at when we see these revelations of God in what become the names of God throughout history. It's extraordinary. Now, just in order to, to really get the background, because what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the first four or five names of God. There's hundreds. We literally, depending on how you want to define names of God, there's literally hundreds, and we could take years to do it, and maybe we will one day because we tend to take years on our series. But bottom line. But bottom line, what we're doing is, is we're just looking at the first few ones, and we're looking at the first ones that he revealed about himself because of what they tell us about who he is. He was trying to reveal himself to the Jewish people, but not just to the Jewish people. Remember, here's what happened. In the garden, God made us. This is the very beginning. He made us, and he just wanted to be with us. And he was with us in the cool of the day, walking around, gave us something to do. But he was just fellowshipping with us in relationship. But that's why he made us. He wanted to be with us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were enjoying their relationship, and they made more to be in relationship with. That's it. Simple. But because he wanted it to be a real relationship, a love relationship, not a master-servant relationship, not a subservient one. He wanted it to be a real loving relationship. He didn't force us to be in relationship with us. He put in the garden a thing of free will, this tree. And he said, don't eat of it. If you do, it's going to separate us. But you can, but don't. But you can. Free will. So what happens is, is that we choose that, and what ends up happening is we get separated from him, right? Now, when we get separated from him, he allows us to go thousands of years trying to get back with God. Because after all, if he made us to be with us, his goal is, is to be with us. And so we said we want to do it on our own, so we let us try it on our own. And for thousands of years, we tried it on our own. And at one point in time, in fact, instead of finding God, we became so filled with violence that God said, I can't have these creations doing this. And he wiped it all out in the flood except for the family, right? But even after that, look, the next thing they did, the very next thing they did was build a tower of Babel to try and make themselves like God. <laughs> so there's problems. And so finally, after a couple of, after thousands of years, God says this. He says, now that you've tried it all these other ways, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to now show you what a relationship with me looks like. Why? Because you're going to find out as you see me in relationship with one person and later on his descendants, as you see me in relationship with somebody, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to discover who you are. Because we like to think that we're after God, but in fact we're after ourselves. And two, you're going to find out who I am in the way that I keep pursuing, in the way that I do what I do. You see it? So what God's doing is, and this is where our story starts, because we've got the first few chapters that have to do with all those thousands of years. And then really by the time we hit about eh, just, just a few chapters in, we start going into God comes to this one man, Abram, in the land of Ur, which is on the map. It's kind of up and it's kind of, kind of Iraqi, Turkey, right in that area. And what happens is he calls him out of that Iraq place and he calls him down into what is now Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to give this land to you and so on. Now, the extraordinary thing is, is that he, Abraham is not, Abram at that point in time is not young. He's already 75 years old. And God calls him at 75 and Abram goes. So that's extraordinary right there. 
But the point is, is we pick up the story right about there. Now, as we're looking at these names of God, I do want to explain one more thing, which is the first name of God that we see is El. And I want you to understand, El is just a generic name for God. It's the same way, I, I woke up this morning, and I heard drum beating, and I thought it was a Seahawk thing downstairs, but they weren't playing. Top, I live on top of Top Pot. <laughs> Not very healthy. I don't actually eat Top Pot donuts. That, you wouldn't look at me and say that, but it's true. But, but the point is, there's always these Seattle Seahawk drummers, anytime there's a Seahawk game on, and they're drumming and drumming up, you know, enthusiasm and all that 12-man stuff. But this morning, I hear the drumming, and I thought it was Seahawks, but I was like, they're not playing today, so what is it? And I looked outside, and it was a Hindu wedding, which was very cool, by the way. It was just really wonderful, and it was a pretty good beat, you know. But they were drumming, and they were walking around, and they were walking down the street and everything else over by the Hyatt. They were having this big wedding. So when they talk about their God, they talk about God, right? Gods in that particular case, right? But they talk about their gods. So God is just in English, it's a generic term, even when it's in the Bible, El. God is just this name for that idea that there is something out there, somebody out there, some, right? That kind of thing. So we see that in the very first verse, where it says, in the beginning, God, El, created the heavens and the earth. And the one thing that I do want to note about this, just briefly, is El is the singular, Elohim is the plural. Why does it refer to himself in the plural? Scholars will tell you, oh, because there's this royal we. It's like the Queen of England saying, we shall have our tea now. She doesn't mean the whole nation's going to have their tea now. Uh, although they do, but anyway. But, you know, what she means is, is, I want tea, you know, right? But she uses a royal we because she represents all the people. And they'll say that. And, and I, they always say that's why God calls himself because it's a royal we inclusive. And I always say, no, it's the other way around. What, what, what God is doing is, is that, well, it, we don't, the queen doesn't call herself we because, she calls herself we because that's how God refers to himself in the plural. But here's the point, when God refers to himself in the plural, he's not using the royal we. He's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right at the very beginning, when we have El, it could be El, God. In the beginning, El created. But it's not, it's Elhim, plural. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created. And then it goes into the next verses, the next verse, and the word. And the word is who? Jesus. And the Spirit of God was hovering over. See? So you got the, you, in the first three verses of the Bible, you have the whole Trinity right there. So that tells us something about God in terms of revelation, right? But let's go to the more what we call compound names now. Compound names is God having revealed himself as something. So the first one that we've got is El, Elion, God most high, most exalted. Now here's where this one comes from. Remember this guy, Abraham, right? Or Abram at that time. Abram is coming out of, he's come out of the land, he's been prospered greatly to the point, he's a shepherd, to the point that the nephew that he brought with him, who's also prospering, their servants have started arguing with each other. So extraordinary move by Abram. Abram is the guy, right? Abraham gets to pick. But Abram goes like this with his nephew. He says, look, there's a low-lying valley it has a lot of grass and cities down in it and so on. So there's that, and then there's this high rocky hill. You take your pick, and I'll take the other one so that we can separate. Now Lot, being the normal kind of human being, picks the grassy nice place, right? Abram goes, therefore, to the rocky not-so-nice place. Now the thing about nice places, particularly in that day and time, is this. Other people wanted what you have. 
And the people in the nice places had nicer stuff. Nobody was going up into the rocky hills to take over some shepherd. But there were people that wanted where Lot went. Because they, were, they had prosperity going. They had trade routes. They had gold and silver. And they had goods and, and manpower and so on and everything else. So what would happen is you would have either a town or a group of towns or whatever. And that would become a kingdom. There was a king. A strong guy who was in charge of what was going on in that area. Right? And then there would be some king somewhere else. And there would be a bunch of kings. Right? And there would be some king somewhere else. And he would go, I'd like more stuff. I mean, that's why. That, honestly, it's no more complicated than that. I'd like more stuff. And by the way, let's get real about it. If I don't go get more stuff, somebody else is going to get more stuff, and then they're going to come and get my stuff. So if I don't be aggressive about getting other people's stuff, they're going to take my stuff. Got it? I mean, that's all of human nature in the, for thousands of years of human history right there. Okay? Stuff. So what happens is some kings say, hey, they, they're building up a lot of stuff. Let's go take their stuff. So they come down there, and they overcome these kings, ally, all, all these little towns and their kingships, and they join together, and they have a battle, and they lose. And what happens is, is Lot, Abram's nephew, gets captured. Now, Abram's a shepherd. What's he going to do about kings with armies and warriors and arrows and, you know, ramps and all the stuff that you need when you're going to go take over towns that are fortified? What's a shepherd going to do? But here's what Abram does. I'm going after him. And amazingly, he wins. <laughs> the shepherd beats the kings that have already beat kings. It's an, it's an incredible story. Right there, right? But let me show you how much better the story is than that. Because what happens is, as Abram's coming back with all the stuff that they took from the guys that took the stuff, and the people... He's met by two people. One, the king from Sodom, where Lot was from, Sodom and Gomorrah. That Sodom and Gomorrah is another place, and then Sodom, and that's where Lot was. One's the king of Sodom, who had been overcome. And the other one is Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, which is up there in that rocky place. And it's just a little nothing town that later on becomes Jerusalem. So the king of Salem and the king of Sodom go out to meet Abram as he's coming back with all the spoils and the people that he had recaptured, right? Now, watch this. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Now, right here we have a little bit of an, uh, an odd thing. How powerful is Abram right now compared to the king of Salem? Much more. He's got a lot more stuff. He's got a lot more people. He's got a lot more power. He's just beat all those kings. Who's this king of And he's blessing me. It's kind of, it's a little odd, but he is a priest of the Most High God. But here's what's really cool about it. Watch this. He could have said, you know, what are you doing blessing me and so on? But this priest, Melchizedek, says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High. El Elyon. That's the word right there. God Most High. Most exalted. Better than. Greater than. That's what this God is. Creator of heaven and earth. That's how big he is. He's not just the God who's bigger than those armies and those generals and those kings. He's the God who's the creator of everything. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. And the next thing that Abram says is, no, I did that. I put my, I put my rear end on the line. Come on. Let's give me the props. Is there anything like that from Abram? 
not only does he not insist on the fact that he had done something great, but look what he does do. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe, that's where it comes from. This is the first place it's ever used in the Bible. A tenth of all the goods that he'd recovered. He gave them to the, who is this guy? Why would you give him a tenth? Take the blessing, move on. Keep the stuff, right? Give a tenth of it to this guy, why? Abraham, Abram knows who won that victory. When this guy comes as a priest of the Most High God and he says, blessed be the Most High, the greater than God, who created everything and gave you victory, Abram goes, yep, that's him. That's how I won. When he pronounces that blessing, Abram goes, I bear witness to that and to demonstrate it, to, be, to, to model it, to understand it, I'm going to give a tenth of everything that I recovered to this priest, to God. See? God is the one who gave me that victory. He doesn't step up in himself. He steps up in God. You see that? And he gives him a tenth to recognize you're the one who did this. That's extraordinary. I mean, that's, that's, that's a move. <laughs> God who is greater than everything. We're talking about trying to live life in the Friday before Labor Day. If you believe that God was greater than everything, would you be more at peace? You understand, when he gave him a tenth of everything, he wasn't just acknowledging that God was greater. There's another thing that took place. Watch this. The king of Sodom, where Lot was captured, he says, look, we know how it goes with war. The, the victor gets the spoils. But would you please give me the people of Sodom back? Abram says, yeah, I will. But I'm not just going to give you the people. I'm going to give you all the stuff, too. I just gave a tenth, so there's not that. And the, and the couple of guys got a little something because of the risk and so on. But all the stuff I'm going to give back to you, too. Now think about the act of faith that that took. Let's be clear about something. Sodom and Abram are not necessarily friends. They don't like go out to coffee together and catch a movie. These guys are potential enemies. The more prosperous that Abram gets, the more of a threat it is to Sodom. Sodom is a potential enemy of Abram. Do you see it? And he's returning all of his stuff to him. Now, now watch the trust that he has. Here's what he says. Abram says this. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to ever say that anybody but God prospered me. Think about it one way. This king of Sodom saying, you know the reason why Abram's rich is because he took all our stuff. <laughs> See, years later when he forgets about the other stuff, about the fact that he lost a war, right? But we don't even have to go to such a negative place. We can just go to this place which is Abram was literally equipping somebody to make him strong again in a way that was threatening to his own life. Do you see that? Do you see the level of trust that it took for Abram to give the stuff back? Abram was saying, I not only trust you, I not only, I not only am not going to let anybody say that anybody but God prospered me, I'm taking the whole of my future and I'm going to trust in God and God alone. The God who just defeated these enemies for me, if I create another enemy, and if something happens here, he'll defend me there too. I trust you with everything in my life. Now let me ask you a question. If you're trying to live in the spirit of Friday before Labor Day, 
and you really believe in your heart to the point that you will take physical actions which are not necessarily good for you, in fact, could be perceived as being harmful to you. But you do them in order to be God's and God's alone, to be trusting Him and Him alone. Do you think that you would live in less of the stress of the burdens of the things that you're concerned about? If you know El Elyon, the God most high, the God most exalted, the God who is greater than, if you know that God, do you think that you will handle your burdens in a different spirit? You see it? Cool, huh? Okay. All right, that's cool. Let's go to another one. Adonai. I love this one. Lord and Master. Here's what Master means to Americans. Ruler. The truth is, that's what it means. But here's how we interpret it. Southern slavery. Master-slave. We look at master-slave, master-servant, and we look at greater and lesser, and we don't, that just grates on us Americans where everybody's created equal. Right? So we think of it in those terms. You do realize that even in the world right now, except for the Western world, that the dominant paradigm is master and servant. Why? Because we were just talking about it. That's, that king stuff, on. it's just different terms in the way that we think about it. But there's still powerful people that protect people. And the truth is, is throughout the history of the world, until about the last 100 years, truthfully, until about the last 100 years, you do realize that there were, there were some slaves that you got because you took over some other city, and those slaves could maybe be mad at you, so you had to be careful. And, and there might be some mistreatment of them and so on. And God said, don't do that, but people did that. People mistreated slaves like the Southerners mistreated, right? The Southern plantation owners. But you do realize that there was this other thing that God said, and he said, you know, if you're a countryman, you're to be set free. And if you're to be set free and be a freed person, you can say, I'd rather not be set free. I'd rather go, and, and we, you go to a post. This is where earrings come from, girls. And you, you, you punch a hole in the ear, and what you're saying is, is I'm now a bond slave to that master because I want to be. Because my life is better. When we think of master and slave, don't think of southern slave owners. Think of Downton Abbey. You ever watch that? It's the, the British, you know, it's the landed gentry. You do know that the people that had a lot of land also had a lot of responsibility. The people that lived on their acreages, yes, there was a greater, lesser, but, they, but the greater had a responsibility to employ the lesser. And they did so to the, to the point that most of those landed gentry in England lost their fortunes and their estates because they kept employing people. Because they can't put them out of work. What are they going to go do? The world is a nasty place. It's not safe. Being a, being a small business owner in America is wonderful. You get paid less than minimum wage, but it's still wonderful. Most of them do. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that throughout the history of the world, to be under somebody who could protect you and that you could have relative peace and that you could have a certain amount of prosperity in your life and so on, that was better than being out there on your own where you're going to be engulfed by the next guy who wanted to take your stuff and was more powerful than you. See that? So when we get to Adonai and Lord, we hear master as in this domineering. I want you to hear a totally different word in your heart. I want you to hear dad. 
That's a greater or lesser relationship, right? When you hear Adonai, I want you to hear Dad, because here's what happens. See, God comes to Abram when he's quite old now, and he says to him, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham does, Abram does this. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Don't be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Adonai, Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Elias of Damascus is going to be the servant of my household. He's going to inherit all my wealth. Now, now I want you to read this two different ways. The first way is petulant, mad at God. Got an issue with him. God has not done, you, not done right by you. I wanted something, and he didn't give it to me. Right? So he says, I'm going to bless you. And you say, yeah, well, what about that? See that? Now, that's one way of reading it, isn't it? There is a time when Sarah actually does answer God improperly. She hears that she's going to have a, a son, and she's 100 years old, and she's sitting in a tent, and she goes, she laughs. She <laughs> goes, yeah, right. <laughs> right? And God says, I heard her laugh. Oh, no, I wasn't laughing that way. Yeah, you were. I know. <laughs> right? But I want you to see, I want you to read this the way that I think Abram said it, and God's reaction, I think, is the reason why we can read it this way. Look at how, look at how, look what, look what Abram's really saying. I'm hurting. You're telling me that you're going to reward me. Thank you. But there's, but I want something more than reward. I want something different. I don't know what you're talking about yet because he's about to give him a son that he wants. But here's what he's doing. What he's saying is, is I have an area of pain in my life. And I'm just telling you about it. You're telling me that you're going to bless me, but this is the thing I really care about the most. And Daddy, I want you to know. Now understand the relationship here. If you're in Downton Abbey and the master comes and gives you something nice, what should you do? Even if you wanted something else, shut up and take it. Right? Don't, don't create ill will between you. That's the, that's the normal greater, lesser relationship. But here's the relationship that Abram has now come into with God. Look at how different it is. Dad, you've promised me something good. Thank you for that. But I'm hurting. And I want to tell you where I'm hurting. That's the relationship that you should have with your father. Right? That's an intimate relationship. Yes, there's a greater and a lesser in it. But look at the boldness of vulnerability and transparency when it's intimate and loving. See it? Now watch how God responds. He doesn't say, who the heck are you? You know, look a gift horse in the mouth. If I use scumbag. You know, I mean, my, 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 uh, when we went broke and my father-in-law gave me this car, and it just wasn't the kind of car that I would want. And I was still sort of in a privileged mentality because I'd come out of one, right? And so I really didn't like this car, and I was like, I don't want to drive that kind of a car. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's just a stupid, petulant, ridiculous kid. He was doing a blessing to me. And I looked the gift horse in the mouth, and I was like, I don't want that kind of a car. That's not the kind of car I would ever drive. <laughs> literally, literally. Only time I ever even heard about anything like this happened, it was up a steep hill, and there was a truck that was loaded with steel pipe, and the brakes let loose on the truck, and the truck came right down and T-boned that car that he was going to give us, and just wrecked the whole side of the car. <laughs> and 
my father-in-law, to his great credit, said, you didn't like the car I was giving you? Here, take this one. <laughs> and we drove around in a car I didn't want to drive with a whole side dented in. <laughs> now, I learned something. Thank you, Marion, for the gift and the help that you were trying to be. And who the am I that I would have thought anything but thank you? You see that? This is this. And here's how God responds to that. The Lord said to him, no, your servant is not going to be, your, your servant will not be your heir. For you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and he said to him, look into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. You see it? This is a daddy and a son. You're hurting, son. Let me tell you, I'm dealing with exactly your hurt. And I'm going to do something spectacular that's far above anything you could think or imagine about it. Did it take 100 years? Yeah, that's a long time. But you know what? It's going to be worth it. See it? Adonai, Dad. I want us to be the children of Abraham because, see, here's what it says. This is one of the most important moments in all of human history. You know that, right? Because right here in this relationship that God was establishing with a human being to show who he was and who we are and what it all looks like and how it all works out, right here at this very moment, this is the moment where Abraham could have said, I'm really old, there's no way I can have a son. Right? And instead, and Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. That moment right there is the whole of the gospel. You don't believe me? Watch this. We're to be children of Abraham. Galatians. Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. When he says your heirs are going to be like the stars of the heaven, later on in the next one that we're about to look at, he comes to him and he says, before your name was Abram, which means father, essentially it means a little bit more than that, but it means father. But now your, now your name after you have this son is going to be Abraham, which means father of many nations. Not just the Jewish people who were alone more than numerous than the stars. Not literally, but you get my drift, right? It was that, you can't count them, right? There was just so many, you could never count them. But here's what he's saying even more than that. He's saying every single person that believes like Abram did, that's who my children are. That's the descendants of Abram. We're to be Abram's descendants. We're to be his children. We're to have what? The faith that he has. The faith that's able to go to the Lord and say, Dad, Will Lees, if you did not hear his sermon from a couple of weeks ago, listen to it. He talked about one of these psalms that is one of these disorienting psalms, he called it, which is where it's being a complaint, essentially. And what he talks about in such a beautiful way is, is that he goes into this, this thing about what God is really looking for from us is honesty. Total transparency, total vulnerability. He's looking for the biggest problems that we have. Here's what he's not looking for. I'm doing really good, God, and you're hiding stuff behind your back. You know what I mean? I'm doing so good, and don't you love me? And I love you and everything else. But really, you don't love him because you got this issue. Here's what he's looking for. Here it is. Here it is. Transparent. You can see everything. Here it is. Here it is. Here. If you were able to give everything to the God who is greater than everything, would you be in a more Friday state of mind? Friday before Labor Day. If you can really give God everything. 
Okay, next one. El Shaddai. Love this one. I don't know what's going on. I'm not quite getting the clicker, guys. El Shaddai. Lord God Almighty, all-sufficient one. This is a great one because this one, this one, El Shaddai means mighty one, right? Everybody knows that. Here's, here's the sense of it. And this is the way that they mean to translate it. When it went from the Hebrew to then Latin to then English, and the Latin scholars in particular said, what's the actual root word of it? And what they said was is it's kind of fear of God. It's kind of like God is almighty. See, that's the sense of it. And that is certainly who God is, right? And they get it from one of the root words that could be the, the base meaning. But here's the truth about that word. Nobody really knows what the root word is of that. Nobody really knows how to translate it. Why? Because there's actually two root words that are as likely to be where the word came from. One of them is almighty. But you know what the other one is? A mother's breast. To suckle, to care for. I tell you... I looked at that word, and I looked at that word, and I looked at that word, and I did a bunch of research on it. And I really came to the conclusion, I could be wrong about this, but I came to the conclusion that God oftentimes will allow for a word play. does it all the time in Scripture. You know, we use them, He uses them too. And, and I really think that this is a word play of a particular sort, where God is allowing there to be two meanings, because He is God Almighty, greater than all. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He is that God, but to anybody who knows him, that mighty God is taking care of you, has brought you to his breast, has brought you into himself, like a mother protects a child. See that? That's cool, isn't it? So here's what happens on this one. When he's 99 years old, he still doesn't have a kid. Remember, he was promised a kid back there. We just looked at it. He was promised a kid, but it didn't happen for quite a long time. And I want to say right there, there's a big lesson for us, right? You know, we, we think God promises that if it doesn't happen next week, well, then he's just not been good to his word. Here he is, you know, could be as much as a couple of decades later. But what happens is he comes to him again when he's 99 years old, and he appears to him and says, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am mighty God, and I am the one who suckles, who cares, who protects who cares for you, and I am going to do this incredible thing for you. And, and I get a couple of different things out of this if I want to live in that Friday spirit, one of which is I need to remember that God is greater than everything, particularly anything that would come against me, because my daddy is that great. Because he is mighty, and he cares for me like a mother does her child. I need to remember that when, when this is happening, I, if I want to live in a Friday spirit, I have to know more and more and more who God truly is. I have to know that progressive revelation of his real nature in order to live in the peace that passes understanding. You know, let me paraphrase that. There's, there's a peace of God that passes understanding, right? Let me paraphrase what that means. Whatever's bothering you, God can bring peace to you, even though that hasn't changed. 
There's a peace that passes what you're worried about. There's a peace that passes the burden that would weigh you down. There's a way to take off the backpack of weight and to live in freedom in the God who is greater than everything. Your dad, mighty God, your mother caring for you. Now, we're just about to take a, a left-hand turn and we're getting close to wrapping up. Jehovah Jireh. I just have to do a quick little sidebar. Jehovah. Does everybody understand that Jehovah is the same word as Yahweh? The thing that happened in it is this. Is that in English, if we were to translate, if, as an English person, if we were to take the original Hebrew word and we were to translate it into just its consonant, consonants, right? It would be it would be Y-H-W-H, which we pronounce Yahweh when we add the vowels. We add an A, an A, and an E. Yahweh. Okay? And we get the word Yahweh, and that's this intimate name of God that we're going to talk about in just one second. But then there's the German letters. Now, German, in German, what's the Y sound? J. My, my mother's maiden name is Jaeger. J-A-E-G-E-R, Jaeger. No, that's Jaeger. No, it's Jaeger because it's a German name. Now, likewise, their V is pronounced as a W. So the German scholars started writing J-H-V-H, which then gets to America, and we say, let's add the vowels, and we come up with Jehovah. Now, here's what I want to say. I'm being totally serious here. It's going to be kind of funny, but I'm being totally serious. This is a plot from the pit of hell. Why? What's the name Yahweh supposed to be? We get the revelation of it when? With Moses. It actually is found the first time in the Bible in chapter 2, and it's actually used throughout Genesis. So there's the L, the generic name for God, but then there's this other name for God, which is Yahweh. And what does Yahweh mean? We find out the fullness of what it means when Moses, about 500 years after Abraham, Abram, Abraham, he, is, he has been raised in the Egyptian household. He sees a Jewish person being persecuted. He, he intervenes and ends up killing the Egyptian guy. He's afraid he's now going to be killed, so he runs away. He spends 40 years in the wilderness, and now God says, go back to Egypt and deliver my people from Egypt. And the way that he finds that out is the burning bush. And at the burning bush, God is telling him to go back to Egypt. And he's going, I'm just a little shepherd. I'm not going back to the most powerful nation in all the world and telling him anything. And finally, he's going, well, you know, who should I tell him has sent me? You know, who am I supposed to say you are, burning bush? And he says, Yahweh. What's Yahweh mean? I am. I am. What does I am mean? Here's what it means. You know, back there in those old stories that you hear about Abram 500 years before and all that kind of stuff, when you hear, and you, in chapter 2 of, you know, the book that you're about to write, Genesis, and you, you hear about, that's, I'm the God who was with them. I'm the God who's with the descendants that are going to come way after you. I'm the God who's with them. I am with them. I'm the God who is with you right now. Remember we talked in the very beginning about the extraordinary thing about Christianity is that it is a God who is alive and real and goes throughout history with intimately as dad and mom. God, I am. Who is the God who sends me? The one who's much bigger than Pharaoh, who was around way before Pharaoh, who in fact created Pharaoh. 
I am. That's who I am. That's who you should say. Tell them, I am who I am. I am. When we, here's what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be calling him God. Can I be clear about that? God is the generic name that everybody uses. We're supposed to be calling him Yahweh. It is a tragedy, in my opinion, a tragedy that the Jewish people doing what they did with the law, and what they did was this. They saw that tetragrammaton, that's what we call it, the four consonants, and what they did is they said this. They said, we can't, call, we can't use that name because one of the Ten Commandments is don't take the Lord's name in vain. And what if we use that name and we took it in vain, then we would have violated the law. So let's make it impossible for anybody to ever even pronounce the name. Let's never give it vowels. So the word is, there's no vowel. You can't pronounce it. Then you can't take it in vain. That's a plot from the pit of hell. God was trying to tell us, who am I supposed to say sent me? Who am I supposed to say met me? Not God generic. Yahweh. God I am. This is the God that we're supposed to be speaking to. This is the God that we're supposed to be revealing. The I am. You want to know who God is? He is. <laughs> He's right here, right now, in the middle of everything and has been in every single thing that has ever happened throughout the course of human history. That's who this God is. And we're supposed to be proclaiming that name from the, mount, from the rooftops. But for some stupid reasons, Christians who should know better have followed that rule. And we, we, we've, in your Bible, you'll see L-O-R-D in all caps, or small caps as they call them. And when you see that, that's Yahweh. I hate this. This is wrong. We should be pronouncing Yeshua, which, by the way, is how you actually pronounce Jesus, right? J again, okay? It should be Yahweh and Yeshua. And we should be proclaiming that name everywhere. Now, I don't care. I don't think the pronunciation is what bothers God. I think the fact is, is that we call him the generic is the problem. I think the fact that we don't understand him to be the I am who's in the middle of every circumstance in your life. That's the problem. Should I get off of... <laughs> yeah. Here's how it happens. Here's how we get it. Abram has had the son. The son has now come of age, probably about 15, somewhere in there. God says, sacrifice him. God actually says before he says sacrifice, he says, I'm going to test him. Now, when he says test him, is it because God didn't know the outcome? Or is it because he wanted to, us to see the outcome of the test? I think it's more the latter. I'm just not an open theist. That means God doesn't actually know what's happening in, in the future, and I think that that's incredibly stupid, and the Bible proves it, because God is the one who says himself, I'm the one who causes something to happen, and so I know everything's going to happen because everything happens because I caused it to be. <laughs> that's sovereignty. Right? So the bottom line is, is when he says he's testing him, what he's doing is, is he's showing us something. He's showing us Yahweh Yireh, the God who provides because what happens is, is God comes to him and says, sacrifice this promised child. By the way, Abraham at this point was like 115 years old. Okay? So that's old. He will live a few more years. But the bottom line is, is he's old. 
And he says, sacrifice your son. Now, now let me make this clear. We're supposed to be the children of Abraham, right? That's how to get peace for Friday, right? For Friday before Labor Day, the way to get peace in it is to be like Abraham, right? All right, so Abraham, so, so Eric, kill your oldest child. <laughs> she don't look none too happy. <laughs> Could you do it? Let's be honest. I couldn't. I can tell you, you know the most extraordinary thing about that story, about God telling him to go sacrifice his son? The most extraordinary thing about that story is what's not said. Because here's what's not said. What? What are you talking about? How could this possibly be? This is crazy. What do you mean kill? This is the problem. I waited 100 years. You know what I mean? Here, take the second one. No, excuse me. <laughs> And now the second child is going, what? <laughs> Do you see it? What's extraordinary about this story is, is that when Abram hears this, Abraham now, when he hears this, here's what he says. Or here's what he does, not says. Here's what he does. Saddle up a donkey, collect some wood to build an altar. Come on, son. And he grabs a knife. I got to tell you, I like to think that I'm a child of faith in the descendant of Abraham way that we should be. And in this story right here, I find out I am not. And then I wonder why I'm not at peace. And I wonder why burdens can overcome me. And yet it's right there for me to see. Right? He takes him up there. He gets him all the way to where he creates the altar. He puts his son on the altar and he raises his knife and God says, Stop! I wanted you to see. I wanted everybody to see. Now I know. And now you guys all know when I counted him righteous way back there and he believed, you all now know what he really did in his heart. You all now know who he really is. Because this is much deeper than what you were thinking, isn't it? And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in the thicket and that's what they sacrifice and that is the Lord will provide. He revealed himself to be the Lord who will rise. Now, do remember, Abraham did do something, right? I mean, now a few years in, before he had the son, he decided, hey, you know, it must be through a concubine because there's no way, you know, it's hard enough for a man to have a child at that age, but a woman, there's no way. Right? And so they create a child with a concubine who ends up becoming roughly, it's not exactly this way, but roughly ends up becoming all the nations that surround Israel right now and they're the Muslims that are in enmity with them. So I do, I do want to say something. You know, it's always good not to do something in your own flesh. If God has made you a promise, it's good to let him fulfill it. And don't try and make it come to pass in your own way. That's just a nice little lesson, and that'll keep you from not having Muslims that surround you and try and kill you all the time. Now, that's not, I didn't mean that in a slam all the way across. I, it was, I, I went for a joke. It was, anyway, excuse me. But you see what he does is when he sees this ram, he says, Abraham named the place Yahweh Yairo, which means the Lord will provide. Right? Now that we've got this Yahweh, now that we've got this name, look, we've got these names of God, El Elyon and Adonai and Shad El Shaddai and Jehovah Jireh, and we've really begun to understand them. And all of a sudden we start getting to these Yahweh names. The first one is right there, that Yahweh Yaira, the compound names that are Yahweh. I am this, I am that, the I am's. Watch this. Watch this. I am your banner. That means the flag under which you do what you do. I'm the protectorate. I'm the, I'm the strong one. 
you march under my orders. Do you see it? I am your shepherd. I am your healer. I am the one who never abandons you. I am your righteousness. I am the one who sanctifies you. I am your peace. Can I ask you to do something? I want you to take a look at that list. I'm your banner, your shepherd, your healer, the one who never abandons righteousness, the one who sanctifies your peace. I want you to look at that list, and I want you to start to say, if you had to boil that list down, do a reduction on it, and you were having to bring it down to a little phrase that would sum up everything that that is, all of these different ways that God has been revealing himself. Look at one of the things that we're not seeing up here. Not that God never reveals himself this way, but look at what we're not seeing. We're not seeing the normal religious impulse. I'm God. I'm made everything shut up and worship me do you see that there's nothing like that kind of a revelation in scripture anywhere there is i am holy there is i am all these other things but they're always in the context of this pursuit pursuing you i'm your banner i'm your healer i'm your sustainer i'm the sinless sanctifies you i will never abandon you i am this god who is doing all of this stuff for you that's who I am. It's extraordinary. And when, if you were trying to reduce all that down, and let's go ahead and add most high, most exalted, loving God and master, Lord God Almighty who intimately cares for us. I am the one who provides. I want, to, I want you to take all those names right there, and this is the first revelations of God and then the ones that come later, and I could put up hundreds of them, and the, the absolutely 90 plus percent of them would be in this very area. What? How, if you had to boil that down into one short little phrase, what would it be? I love this congregation. God is love. A revelation in the New Testament. Not that it wasn't being revealed throughout the old. But it's in Christ Jesus that we see the depths of his love because we made the choice to separate ourselves and he came and took that penalty. He allowed him to be separated, Jesus, from the triune, eternal trinity. He allowed himself for, we don't know how, we don't, but for a moment, for something to happen, that he took upon himself what was due us. It's extraordinary. And when we get there in Christ, here's what we see. You, you, you can make up all kinds of stuff about who God is from the Old Testament, and people have. But when you get to the New Testament, you have to say something, and even the secular world says it all the time. If Jesus Christ is the express manifestation of God, then God is love. Because that's extraordinary. Him taking upon himself what we did. We offended him. We hit him, and he took that upon himself. I want you to do something here. We're just going to take about five minutes to do this. And thank you, Will, for coming up. I want you to get your bulletin, and I want you to pull it out, and I want you to look to the back side of your bulletin. You need a pen and you need a bulletin. If you don't have it, raise your hand. The ushers have extra copies for you, and they'll bring them forward. And here's what I want you to do. On the back of your bulletin, I write, want you to write down everything that you're thankful for. You remember when I said there were four primary categories? The first one is relationships. Now, if you're estranged on a relationship, say, with your parents, 
then don't write that down as something that you're thankful for. But don't write it down at all. We're not looking for the stuff that, we're, that isn't going well. Remember, it takes 10 compliments to overcome one criticism. So we're going to get the 10 built up, and we're going to find it's not just 10, it's 100. We got, we got a few things. Every one of us has got something in our life that isn't going right, right? But what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a moment, and we're going to look at the God who loves us and is pursuing us, and we're going to see how much he's blessed us in ways that we don't even think about. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down. I want you to literally number them, okay? Number one, look at relationships. Look at your, your, look at your close relationships, like with your parents, with your spouse, with your children, okay, the, the total familiar ones. But then look at the other ones, friends. Look at your workplace environment. Look at all of these areas. Look at the relationships and just say, you know, can, I, can you thank him for your relationship with your parents? Can you thank him for the ones with this brother and that sister? Can you thank him for this child and that child? Can you thank him for, see? But then I want you to go to the next one, which is workplace. Can you thank him for your work? Can you or not? I really am hoping that everybody will do this, so please do grab a piece of paper and pen. We have plenty for everybody. So if you still need a piece of paper and you decided you do want to do this after all, raise your hands and grab it. Okay? Please do. Okay? I really want everybody to write this down. I think that there's something in the going through. You remember, you see on Facebook all the time these people doing these challenges, 30 days of thanks. When you start training yourself to look at what you have to be thankful about, it changes everything. So I want you to experience this truth right now. I want you to do relationships, and then I want you to do workplace, and then I want you to do health. If your health is not good, I'm so sorry, and don't write that one down, but if your health is good, then thank him for it, right? And then finances, provision, sustenance. Do you have a house that has become a home? You see? Write this down. Would you just take a few minutes, and, and like I say, literally number them. And just go through these categories and start writing down all the things that God, who is love and pursuing you, has given to you.
relationships, workplace, health, provision, finances. about you guys, but I just started writing down all the people that I was thankful for, and I was writing, listing them by name, and I got down to about 2025 just instantly, and I just went, well, geez, I could take another hour or two just naming the people here, you know, and then the other places that we've lived, and family and friends, and all that kind of stuff, and then I looked at this incredible job that I get to have, and that I get to do by His grace, and His never-ending kindness. And then I just looked at, oh, my health is so much better than it should be. And my finances, God, thank you for a, a, a very you know, wonderful income. Thank you, God. I get to, you know, actually make money and be able to provide and pay bills and I want you to do something with this list. I want you to take it home, and here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to start grouping it and saying, how has God revealed himself to you in these things? Like, I, I, I will circle those friends ones, and I will, I will write down the God who establishes and sustains and keeps great relationships. It's kind of a long name, but it's the one that I mean, right? The God who heals and the God who sustains me. God who anoints. See it? That scripture that talked about that God is love ends like this. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his what? In his power? In his might? 
we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, you are mighty, glorious, fantastic, spectacular. I do have problems and and they have tended to bubble up. That denial thing only works so well. And they've bubbled up and they've consumed me and I've despaired of my life and the problems therein. And I am superficial and stupid. And we repent as we begin to take notice of the God who is not only in history but is in my story who is revealing himself so beautifully, so wonderfully, so loving, who has pursued me. Who am I that you would do this? But you pursue us, God. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before your glorious presence we ask you to just sweep us up and engulf us that we might live forevermore in a place of thanksgiving and praise that we might remember the God who is greater than all things because he is our daddy and though he is almighty he protects me like a mother for he is my healer and my provider and my peace God let us remember who you are unto life and that abundantly thank you God get us to where we live in that joy of what we have to be thankful about every moment of every day let us live in the Friday afternoon before Labor Day even as we go off to work on Tuesday we reach down in front and we grab these this cup and in the lower part of it, there's two cups there so make sure you get them both and in the lower cup is this bread. And this is, this is the broken of, brokenness of our lives. We, we recognize that we have concentrated, even though we did try not to, we have concentrated more on what besets than what has blessed. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we have broken our lives by becoming consumed with what troubles rather than the blessings and the personhood that you are. And so we repent of that. We know that we've broken our lives by forgetting who you are. So we take our finger and we break that bread. We break it knowing that we broke it. And then we come before you and we say, thank you, God, that you're the one who healed it. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus, you do not know this God who is love. What a perfect time. What a beautifully perfect time to say yes and amen to him. Amen. Just being so be it to say yes to this God who is pursuing, to say yes, I want to know who you are. Just recognize that you've broken your life in the ways that you've made some decisions. Not everyone has been bad, but enough have. And just recognize that God is the one who came and took all of that upon himself in order to save you forever. So whether you've known him for years or whether you're knowing him now for seconds, we 
would you take the healing that is in Christ on the cross as he took upon himself the penalty, the, the pain of that separation, but he did so in order to heal us. God himself taking upon himself as healing in that cross. Take this cup to be healed in Jesus' name. God and this cup is the blood the blood that was shed in that moment on the cross when the, the spirit went into your side and out came blood knowing for real that you were dead and we know that the minute that that blood came out, the minute that your life ended, we know that the minute that that blood was spilled every single thing to make us whole was accomplished it's all just waiting for us so we recognize God that there's a life that you have for us and it's in you. And we drink this cup to say, I want the life that you have for me, not the life I've been living. So raise this cup unto him and say, say to yourself as you take it, your life, not mine.